Uh, pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word. I pray that you would enable us to get our minds around this idea, this truth, this fact of history that Christ rose from the dead. Father, I pray that uh, you would enable us not only to get our minds around it, but it would fill our very souls to such a degree that we would walk with you in faith and peace. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Hebrews and chapter 13. Hebrews and chapter 13, please. I want to read verses 20 and 21. Hebrews chapter 13, please. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, hear the word of God. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to be glory forever and ever. Uh, Amen. Uh, I know that I'm jumping ahead a bit in Hebrews. We probably won't get to this verse for a few months. Um, ironically, I started Hebrews the Sunday after Easter last year, and I'm still mid-chapter 11, but we're moving in that direction. You know that the way that I like to travel for, through Scripture is passage by passage. Uh, but given that this is uh, Easter Sunday, uh, I wanted to move ahead to this particular verse, especially verse 20, because this is the only place in the book of Hebrews where the author of Hebrews expressly, explicitly mentions the resurrection of Jesus. It's implied throughout. He could not have written what he wrote without uh, the truth of the resurrection. But here he explicitly uh, makes mention of it. So I wanted to uh, come to this particular verse uh, this morning. Uh, uh, Part of me, however... Uh, thinks I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't necessarily um, run uh, right to a resurrection passage, even though it's Easter Sunday, because every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. Worship naturally moved from Saturday to Sunday after the resurrection of Jesus. We can track it in the New Testament. You can track it in the early church. It simply was the, the, such an impressive historical fact and, and so important in the lives of believers uh, and in the fulfillment of Scripture that uh, Christians uh, began spontaneously, really, without any great plan on their part, it appears, to worship on this first day of the week. And so, so we, in some sense, don't need to have a special day to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And I also feel kind of bad for the folks who just come on Christmas and Easter uh, because you must think that our music repertoire is rather limited and our subject matter is, is confined to the birth and resurrection of Jesus. Two good themes, by the way, as Warren said as he was praying, uh, they sort of come together throughout. But let me, for those of you who come generally on just these days, let me invite you to, to come again. Uh, because there's stuff before even the birth of Jesus, we call it the Old Testament, and, and uh, it informs everything that uh, we understand about Jesus. And so we spend a great deal of time there, and, and there's, there's, there's passages between the birth and the resurrection of Jesus uh, in the Gospels that are very important in, in, in showing who Jesus is. He spends his time on earth not really providing for us ethical teaching, though there's some of that, Primarily what Jesus talks about is his own identity, who he is. And that's what's crucial there. So it's important to look at that and to realize that 
that there's stuff after even the resurrection of Jesus, very important to us, and the sending of the Spirit uh, by uh, the Lord Jesus so that the church could be built, so that we could have life, so that we would be transformed, so that people would be purified, uh, so that the church would be built, so that this invisible kingdom of God would be made visible uh, among us. And even as Jesus intercedes for us, uh, it's important for us to know about that and the fact that he rules and reigns even today. And most especially that there's still stuff to come. And that is, he's going to return someday. So all of that is important. So I don't want anyone to just think we just talk about the birth of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Although that's key, obviously, in, in all of this. But, having said all that, I'm going to talk about the resurrection anyway. Because it's crucial. It's central to everything that we hold true. As I mentioned, even though this is the only place in the book of Hebrews where the author of Hebrews mentions the resurrection of Jesus explicitly, it's implied throughout because he sees Christ as alive and ruling and reigning and having gone before us so that we may come with him and be uh, with him. So all of that's important. Indeed, the, the fact of the resurrection is the climax of each one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's crucial, it's key in all of the Gospels that we read. It's important uh, and a key component uh, in all the preaching in the New Testament. For instance, on the day of Pentecost, which is the, the, the time when Peter preached probably the first sermon in the context of the life of the church, uh, he expressly uh, keys in on the resurrection. For instance, he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He says, listen, the, the attestable fact here among all of you, the things that you all know, is that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's crucial here in the midst of that. He goes on speaking about David having spoken of the resurrection of Jesus, even back in the Old Testament. And he says, being therefore a prophet, that is David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would send one of his descendants on the throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and, and of that we are all witnesses. Again, an attestable fact. Peter was just laying it out, saying, if you have any evidence to the contrary, let me know, because we're all witnesses uh, to this fact. Then as Peter preached to a group of people uh, who were Gentiles, Again, it was the resurrection of Jesus that was the focal point of that. In Acts chapter 10, we read this, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with his Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we're witnesses of all that he did, in, in, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him appear. You see, we saw him. He was raised from the dead. When Paul went to a group of people um, in the early church in Athens who knew, it appears, very little, if anything at all, about God, he spoke to them about Jesus. And again, the key point of his whole message to them uh, was the resurrection uh, of Jesus. He, he puts it like this. 
He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He says, the reason we know this to be true is because God has raised him from the dead. So important in his whole sermon, his whole argument, was this point of the resurrection, that the next sentence begins like this. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. That was the amazing component of his whole message. That's the thing that caught their attention. How could one be raised from the dead? Uh, we think, we realize too that it, this is an important aspect, a key aspect of our profession of faith. Again, the Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans in chapter 10, verse 9. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Key in all of this. And then what I read just before we sang this last group of songs out of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. Again, let me read it. Paul writes, verse 14, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. He says, you know, if, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then everything we say is nonsense. We, we really shouldn't even be saying this at all. It's just vanity. It's just, it's just fruitless. And he says, not only that, but your faith is in vain. If Christ hasn't been raised, and you're acting like he has, and you're running around believing in him, you're a fool. Because if he hasn't been raised, then none of it means anything. None of it's helpful. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins, which means his death didn't do any good at all if he's not raised from the dead. And then he goes, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, all those that have died before us in faith, they're just gone. They've perished. There's no salvation for them. It's just as bad as for them as it would be for us if Christ has not been raised. And then he puts it like this. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. He said people should walk around and say, oh, those poor Christians, they're so deceived. And you might say, well, but is that really true that we're to be pitied? Because, because doesn't it, you know, if you believe in Christ, and even if, this, even if it's not really that true, isn't it still a good life? I mean, you're taught to love each other. You're taught to forgive each other. You're, you're taught to give and be generous and all of that. Isn't, isn't that good enough? And, of course, the answer is no. 
Because we would have lived a deceived life. We would have done everything we did for the wrong reasons. And we would have deceived others. Plus, not everybody who's a Christian has such a nice life. Some people are persecuted for this belief. Some people are ostracized by their families and by their society and lose position and all that kind of thing because they're believers in Christ. It's not a nice life for them. How horrible would it be to give your life and then realize it was all for naught? And Paul says, well, if that would be the case. If Christ has not been raised, then the next sentence, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the very point of it, you see. And that's why Christians have taken great comfort in the historicity, if you will, or the historical fact of the resurrection. The truth of the matter is, the tomb of Jesus was and has always been empty. And so we take great comfort in the fact that it's empty. And there hasn't really been any good explanation of the empty tomb of Jesus given to anybody. I mean, some have purported that that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Well, that could be true, but then why did everybody else go to the wrong tomb? Always, throughout, throughout history. In fact, in John's Gospel, he tells us where the tomb was. It was in the garden right there, he says. So, so, so why would that be such a good explanation? Others have argued that Jesus really didn't die, but when they put him in the tomb, somehow in that dampness, as every mother knows, that's good for wounds, um, that he would be resuscitated. And be, have the strength to move the stone and get out without anybody seeing him and get, by, get past the guards. And when he did show up, all his wounds were healed. I won't even go there. The, um, uh, the, the disciples uh, stole the body, or the Romans stole the body, or the Jews stole the body, or somebody else stole the body. Again, just doesn't make any sense, does it? Because if somebody had stole the body, like the Romans and the Jews, why didn't they just say, we have the body, Christians, just be quiet, go away. Stop talking about this Jesus. We've got the body right here. And if the disciples stole the body, why in the world would they who preached that we should speak truth base their whole lives on what they knew to be a lie? And then why would they die for something that they knew to be a lie? And then, of course, there's all the resurrection appearances of Jesus that were told. And it wasn't just to 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 his disciples, but at one point in time, there were 500 to whom he revealed himself. Uh, And you may say, well, maybe the disciples in their grief were hallucinating and thought they saw Jesus. But, you know, even in the 60s, 500 people didn't have the same hallucination. Uh, (laughs) I'm sort of stretching it, you see. And in the 60s, there was help for hallucinations, right? (laughs) So you begin to question, plus then, always the gauntlet being thrown by the New Testament writers. We're witnesses of this fact. Don't you know that? I mean, they're just laying it out. The contemporaries of, of, of themselves. They said, we saw this. You remember, don't you? But no one seems to come forth and say, no, it wasn't true. It just simply lays out there as an unanswered question. Jesus raised from the dead. Christians take great comfort in the fact of this, of this empty tomb. Because it's important uh, to us. That Christ has been raised, because if he hasn't been raised, then of course uh, we're still in our sins and everything that we believe is, is uh, in vain. So the question we ask then is what's the significance of, of all of this for our understanding of Jesus, his person, his work, what he did, and even for our own lives? Remember, we mustn't spiritualize this. We mustn't spiritualize 
the resurrection of Jesus. You need to, to understand what we're saying when we say that Jesus has been raised from the dead is that the incarnation was real. That is, that God really did become flesh and dwell among us. That it wasn't done with mirrors. It wasn't a charade. It wasn't somebody putting something on. It was, it was the very Son of God, divine in his nature, adding to that, taking upon himself human nature, a real man. He actually lived and he actually died. A real death. Stop breathing. He died a real death. In fact, you might remember that John puts it like this, just to show us, just to make sure we understand that he was really dead. That on the day that these, that Jesus and the two were crucified beside him, that it was getting on in the day, and because it was a Friday and it was the day of preparation for the Sabbath, the Jews didn't want these dead bodies hanging in their midst. And so they asked that the legs of these ones on the crosses be broken. And the reason they asked that is so that it would hurry the death. Because if they would break their legs, then there would be no way that those on the cross could push up. And if they couldn't push up, then they would simply sag in upon themselves and their lungs would collapse. They would die. And so they would break their legs to make the death happen. So they broke the legs of the two thieves by Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, the scripture said they didn't need to break his legs because he was dead. And just to make sure, the guard took his spear and shoved it into Jesus' side and out came blood and water. And he went, yep, he's dead. So he really died a real death. As I think of that, they knew that he had died. And then on that third day, on that Sunday morning, Jesus was alive. And this was unique. Now you may say, well, it wasn't exactly unique. I mean, didn't he raise Lazarus from the dead? And the answer is yes, he did raise Lazarus from the dead. But the uniqueness of Jesus' resurrection is when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he got another body, but it was just another perishable body. Lazarus was going to die again. Which probably made his next funeral something less than a big celebration. People probably thought, well, let's not go really all upset about this because you remember the last time what happened on. But with Jesus, it was, a, it was a look into the life to come. Because Jesus was raised with a resurrection body, that is. He was raised with an imperishable body. He was raised with a body that would never be corrupted again. And the scripture says that he was the first fruit of those who would come after him, meaning that there would be a resurrection for human beings who trusted in him, that is, that there would be a resurrection body for us too. So that's the uniqueness of it, you see. It was the nature of this body that he had. It was the nature of this resurrection that he was raised to life eternal, never to die again. Those of you who have been with us in the book of Hebrews knows the significance of that. I won't go into it. You just play that tape when you can. But you understand that. To be raised to life, to never die, to live Forever, that is, this Jesus. Now, what's the significance of all that uh, to us? Well, here's the way the author of Hebrews puts it. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, we have a couple of descriptions here. We have a description of God, we have a description of Jesus, and we have the basis for which that description is given. Right? God is described as the God of peace. Jesus is described as the great shepherd of the sheep. And the basis for that description is 
by the blood of the eternal covenant, um, uh, I'm sorry, who brought again again from the dead, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus um, through the blood of the eternal covenant. The NIV, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, uh, puts it a little more compactly, puts it like this. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Description of God, God of peace. Description of Jesus, great shepherd of the sheep. The reason that God is the God of peace and Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep is because of the blood of the eternal covenant by which, through which, Jesus was brought again from the dead. Now, what does he mean that God is the God of peace? We understand what peace is. We understand minimally that peace is a lack of conflict, a lack of hostility. When there's a lack of conflict, a lack of hostility, there is in some measure peace. Uh, we can have peace, for instance, even with nature. If there are no tornadoes and no hurricanes happening, no tsunamis, when it's not 92 in April, right? We can have peace with nature. There's no conflict. There's no hostility. One nation can have peace with another nation when there's no hostility between the two. When there is hostility between the two, when there is conflict between the two, we know that there isn't, there isn't peace. That hostility needs to be dealt with. It needs to go away. People can have peace between one another when there's no hostility, when there's no conflict. When there is conflict, we know there isn't peace between the two. We can talk about an inner peace, peace within, when we are not conflicted within our own hearts, within our own minds, within our own lives, when, when all our deadlines are being met, right? We can have peace uh, at, that, at that level. Um, when we're not feeling great pangs of guilt, we can feel peaceful. When we're not anxious about our money, can feel peaceful. We're not anxious about our health. When our health is good, we can, we can feel peaceful um, and all those kinds of things. Well, this passage tells us that God is the God of peace, meaning that he's the source of peace. He's the bringer of peace. He's the maker of peace. He's the provider of peace. You get the sense that without God, there isn't any real peace. There's only conflict outside of and apart from God. And then there is only peace because God works in some measure, some way, by the blood of this eternal covenant. Now, why is that true? When the Bible speaks of the blood of an eternal covenant, of this eternal covenant. He's talking about Jesus, obviously, talking about the gospel, talking about Jesus. We're talking about blood, talking about the death of Jesus. So through the death of Jesus is the establishment of this eternal covenant. Now, a covenant is a promise. And the covenant here is this promise of God by which he promises to bring peace. And it's eternal because it's been his promise from the very beginning of time. And it's eternal because it'll never change. And it's eternal because every promise that God ever made is fulfilled and consumed in this covenant. That is, by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the author of Hebrews, for instance, if you've been tracking with us through Hebrews, talks about an eternal salvation, talks about an eternal redemption, talks about an eternal inheritance. 
It's always been true. It will always be true. And God's promise is confirmed and affirmed and established through the blood of this one Jesus. Because you see, the primary hostility, the primary conflict of life isn't with Al-Qaeda. It's not with cancer. It's not with the stock market. It's not with your next door neighbor. It's not with your spouse. It's not with your kids. It's not with your parents. It's with God. That's the primary conflict of human beings. And once that conflict is resolved, then there's peace. And if that conflict is never resolved in a person's life, then there is no peace. And you can say, well, what exactly is the source of that conflict? And again, if you're a reader in the scripture, you you know the source of this conflict. You know the reason for this conflict. We go all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And the conflict begins there. The conflict begins because at that point in time, Adam and Eve said, we're going to be the ones who will determine what is good and evil. We're going to follow our own way. And you see, once human beings began to follow their own way, it created this hostility. This hostility with God from God's perspective and an hostility with God from our perspective. The hostility with God from God's perspective is that he's God. And therefore, he is the one who is the one who will define what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. And he is God and we all should, must submit to him. Not because he's this ogre who's beating us until we do, but because he's this loving creator who said, if you want life, follow me. If you want life, honor me. If you want life, trust in me. If you want life, be joined together with me. If you want life, allow me to define you. If you want life, allow me to direct you. If you want to have great joy, find your delight in me and my ways. That's life. Everything else is death. And you say, that's awfully harsh, isn't it? Well, it is only if we do not understand the glory and the holiness of God. Because you see, any offense against God, even what we might consider a minor offense against God, is huge. Because it's against God. Because he is worth all of our honor, all of our devotion, All of our love, all of our joy is to be wrapped up in him. Let me illustrate it like this. Let's say that I made a painting. Now, I don't paint. Well, I do paint. But I don't paint on canvas. I paint on drywall with one color. Usually one picked out by my wife. Um, So I don't paint. But let's say I did paint. Let's say I, I painted something, you know. And let's say that you deliberately spilled coffee on my painting. Now, that might be an offense against me, although my painting may be more offensive, but that would be an offense, but it's not a big offense because it's just my painting. I mean, my painting not worth much. But let's say that painting was a Monet or a Picasso. That would be a huge offense. You'd be hearing from somebody about that. Why? Because of the coffee? No, it would be the same coffee spilled. But it's the worth of what's being damaged. It's the worth of what's being offended. And here what's being offended 
is God. And basically by offending God, you're saying, I don't want the life that you have. And God is saying, but this is the only life there is. Everything else is death. And so physical death, you see, is just a window into what goes on spiritually with God. Physical death happens. God says, okay, I'm going to show you the wages of sin being death, so I'm going to take away your breath. Every human being is going to die. And when you see that, what you'll realize is, oh, there's only life that can be sustained, and only life is sustained by God. And so he says, listen, it's even worse than that. Because if you've offended me and you live in your sins and you remain in your sins, then what happens is that this picture of death that you see physically goes on for all eternity. All eternity is darkness. Jesus described it as a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where the fire never goes out, where the worm never dies. And you say, that doesn't sound pleasant. And you're right. I have to be honest with you. I can't spend more than a minute thinking about hell. It terrorizes me. That's death, he says. It's eternal death. And that's the problem, you see. From God's perspective, that's the hostility. That's the case he has against us. The hostility from our perspective, quite frankly, is naturally speaking, we really don't want to follow after God. He's, he kind of gets in the way. Now, when we can use him from time to time, it's really helpful. You know, to relieve a little guilt from time to time, to get a little help, to, to kind of feel good about life. God exists, I believe, in something called a higher power. In fact, I just read an article. Somebody taped it to my door uh, about baptism. And now there's a group of people baptizing in the name of a higher power. The, the, the argument was we want to cover all our bases. Um, so God can be convenient from time to time to kind of relieve some sort of subjective sense of guilt or something. But the truth of the matter is human beings want to direct their own lives. And so you see this hostility, you see this conflict, you see this problem. There's no getting together at this point except through the blood of the eternal covenant except through the death of Christ. Because you see, as you know, when Jesus came to die, he didn't come to die for his own sins. He came to die for the sins of others. And he was sent by his Father. The scripture said it was the Lord's will to crush him. What killed Jesus wasn't Judas, and it wasn't the Romans, and it wasn't the Jews. They all had a part of that. It wasn't even our sin, per se. First and foremost, what killed Jesus was his father who put our sins upon him so that he would die as an expression of the love of God, as an expression of the justice of God, so that all that would be fulfilled, so that all who believe in Jesus would have peace, peace with God. Because you see, once our sins are forgiven, then there's no conflict between God and us anymore. It's done. When Jesus said it's finished, that's what he meant. I've paid. It's done. It's over. Everything's been paid. No longer any case against any of those who trust in Christ. The case is gone. The hostility is gone. And then Jesus kindly sent his spirit to change our hearts, to take away the hostility that we have against him. And so once our hearts are changed, then you see we can embrace all of this from God 
And we have then peace with God. And you realize that once you have peace with God, then the possibility exists in the context of your life to have peace everywhere. Because if God is for you, who can be against you? You might remember that when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he said these amazing words. He said, don't be anxious about anything. Hello? You know? <laughs> you know, that makes me anxious. To think about that. I'm, I'm anxious. And then I think about that and it makes me anxious again. But what was the basis of Jesus saying, don't be anxious? The basis was... Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Who cares for them? God does. All right. You're worth more than that. Be at peace. He's going to care for them. He's going to care for you. If you have peace with him, then you can live on that peace. Even when the world is against you. Even when the stock market crashes even when cancer is announced as being present in your body, even when you're in pain. There's peace. Remember the Apostle Paul said, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, uh, make your requests known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. No, no, how could he say that? You could say that, first of all, because you say, listen, don't be anxious, pray. And you say, well, how do I know God will hear my prayers? Well, if you have peace with him, he'll hear your prayers. If there's no hostility between you and God, then he'll hear your prayers. That's the point of it. And once he hears your prayers, two things happen. One is, God is at work in that situation and in your heart to bring you peace. But secondly, just knowing the fact that consciously you know that God knows, that you know that God knows, that you know that God knows, your situation brings peace. Wouldn't it be horrible to walk around wondering, does God understand what's going on today? Does he know what just happened in my life? Paul says, well, he does, but just to make sure, tell him. You know, pray about that. And when you pray about that, then you're aware he knows And there is a sense to one who knows that you have peace with God that comes over you that says, I'm not alone in this. And not only am I not alone in this, the one who is with me is God. See, if you call me and I say, hey, I'll walk through this with you, that might be nice. But it's much nicer if God says, I'll walk with you. Trust me, he's a better walker than I am to be with you. So then how do we know if this is true? That's really the question. I mean, how do we know that we can really bank on this? And that's the very point of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, who, through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back again from the dead our Lord Jesus. You see, it's through the blood of the covenant, this promise that God made, and the promise was... I'll forgive your sins if you trust in me. I'll forgive your sins if you trust in Jesus. I'll forgive your sins. I'll accept you. There'll be peace between the two of us. That's the eternal covenant. That's the promise. And in order to confirm that, in order to show you that that's true, in order for that to be true, he had to bring Jesus back from the dead. Why? Well, because you see, if Jesus stayed dead, 
would you have any assurance that he conquered death? I don't think so. It would look like death had conquered him. And so it really wouldn't give me much assurance about that. Not only that, if Jesus stayed dead, didn't rise from the dead, then it would lead us to the conclusion that he must have died for his own sins, not for ours. Because the wages of sin is death. And if Jesus stayed dead, it would show that, that, that he had to pay the penalty for his own sins. And he's still paying the penalty for his own sins if he's still dead. And that doesn't leave him any time to pay for mine. But if he rises from the dead, what that means is that God accepted his sacrifice, paid in full. And then he was able to say to Jesus, now you're free to go because you have no sin. And so he was raised from the dead, you see. Sacrifice accepted. Our sins paid for. Trust in him. Peace with God. And you see the significance of that, what that brings to us, is this assurance that we're really accepted by God. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, a few months ago, verse 25, Consequently, he, the he there is Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, because Jesus has been raised, it means he lives, and he lives to intercede for us. He lives to be our go-between all the time, between earth and heaven, and between heaven and earth on the way back. He's always there interceding for us. He always has our name upon his heart, and upon his mind, and upon his lips. And so we know that he's always there defending us and, 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 and caring for us even as he's in heaven. And he does that by the Holy Spirit. And so we can have that kind of affirmation. We know that we don't have to fear death. For instance, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, uh, the Apostle Paul puts it uh, like this. Uh, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death... Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Meaning, death, physical death, is scary because we know that the law says we've sinned. And we know that since the law says we sinned, when we go before God, we're in trouble. But then he goes on, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, through the blood of the eternal covenant, he's taken that sin. So he's taken the stinger right out of death. And so we needn't worry about that bee, that wasp. It can't hurt us, really. Not in that sense, as we stand before God.
We have peace with him. We needn't fear death. He intercedes for us. And most especially, our work is not in vain. He goes on, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We're still in our sins and all of that. And Paul says, no, no, because Christ has been raised, understand this, your whole life is worth it. Your whole life is profitable. Your whole life is productive. Everything you do, because Christ has been raised, because your life is not in vain, because your faith is not in vain, which means you're no longer in your sins, which means you have peace with God, all because of the blood of the eternal covenant, which brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, that's awesome. Thank you. I pray that we learn that, we live in that, that we understand that. And Father, that we realize there's no peace at all without God. And there's no peace with God without Christ. And there's no peace with God without Christ except in his resurrection from the dead. So I pray we embrace it, affirm it, understand it, rejoice in it, and that we can live in peace with you and each other. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you please to stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you about our time this uh, Wednesday evening and for others on Friday with Grace 101. Please note all of that. The response to the benediction is the traditional Easter Resurrection Sunday response for all of us to repeat together, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed.